Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of WorthPoint LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of WorthPoint. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Have you ever wondered what your private company stock options are actually worth? Well, it all hinges on the current valuation of that business, also known as the 409A value. In today's episode, we talk with valuation expert Trent Reed of Economics Partners, where he breaks down the process of going through evaluation and how it impacts the founders, the employees, and the investors. Today's episode is packed with information. And so if you're interested in understanding the inner workings of private companies and why they need a 409A, how often they get valued and what the process is like, then be sure to stick around for my conversation with Trent. Before we continue, please leave a comment and a rating on the show. It helps others find this episode. And you can also get in touch with me directly by emailing me at thejohnchapmanshow at gmail.com. Or you can also find me on LinkedIn where I'm most active. Well, with that, let's jump into today's episode. Hey, Trent, thanks for joining me on the podcast. How are you? Uh, Great, thanks. Great to be here. I'm excited to talk with you, especially here we are in May of 2020. We're in a pandemic market environment. And so many people at private companies are wondering about the valuation of their company. Certainly, there's been some winners. There's been some losers. My goal in having you on is first just to educate employees at private companies how the valuation process works because it impacts some of their options. But also I want to hear from your experience as a CFO and with your background, what it means to go through a process of a 409A. And then last, I'd love to just hear a little bit about the post-pandemic landscape. So as we can start out, Trent, tell us a little bit about economics partners and the work that you guys do. Great. So it's nice to get this chance to, to talk with those that are in your audience. And Economics Partners, we are a business valuation and transfer pricing uh, firm that, that also does some consulting services. And business valuation tends to fall in a couple of buckets or, or three buckets. Either you need a business valuation for a tax compliance reason. So 409A is a piece of tax code. And so it's a tax trigger that necessitates that valuation. And then there are a host of other tax triggers that that come up in different sets of circumstances that would be less interesting to your audience. But there are also valuation situations that come up for financial statement reporting. And in fact, 409A plays into a line of each of their company's um, income statement that is stock-based compensation expense. And so they expense the implied value of those stock options through their PL every year. And so there are a number of financial statement reporting situations that necessitate evaluation. When you do a, an acquisition, then the accounting standards require what's called a purchase price allocation. And then finally, there are a number of valuations that come up in the context of strategic situations. How much is my business worth as I look to sell it? How much is my business worth as I look to raise capital? I need a fairness opinion because it's a public company transaction and I need to give comfort to the board that we're giving good value to the shareholders. So there's, there's a number of strategic triggers that trigger valuations as well. 
And then in addition to that, when companies go international, they need to apportion the relative value of their international operations for paying taxes. And so we do something called transfer pricing, which is a bit esoteric, but vice presidents of tax at companies know all about it. And it's something that we help them out with. Super helpful. I think one of the important takeaways is that valuations can occur for lots of different reasons. It's not just to price the options, but it, it could be if somebody's expanding outside of the U.S. for tax purposes or if the public company is going to acquire them to make sure that the board of directors feels comfortable. So I think that's interesting to hear that there's lots of potential types of reasons. Now, does that mean there's lots of different ways to evaluate the company or are those just reasons for why a valuation would occur? Those tend to be the triggers for doing the valuations. And yes, there are a lot of different ways to go about conducting evaluation, but in most instances, the appropriate valuation methodologies are the same independent of the purpose of the valuation. So if you're doing evaluation for a tax reason or doing evaluation for financial statement reporting or strategic, you'll probably still use the same tools depending on the individual company's set of circumstances, the assumptions that you put into those tools might be a little different in that, you know, valuation tends to fall within a range of reasonable. So when I was an investment banker, for instance, we would have never walked into a client office and said, hey, we'd like to help sell your business. And we think we can sell it for, you know, $137,433,579.27. You don't, you don't, go in that precise, you say, you know, I think we could sell your business for somewhere between 100 to $150 million. If we get people really excited, it could be as much as 150 and it should be at least in the $100 million range. And so you give kind of a range of reasonable. And in the real world, you know, when I was a CFO of a company called Orange Soda, you know, from our, you know, we ran a process, a fully marketed process, talked to a good number of qualified institutional buyers and the difference from one offer to the other offer was significant. And you know, ultimately we went with the best offer and the best situation for us, but different qualified institutional buyers, different companies had a different view of how much we were worth looking at the same company with the same management team, the same PNL and everything. And so you know, depending on the lens through which you're looking, you might use the same tools, but your underlying assumptions or those tools might be more conservative or more aggressive depending on your view of the future and your view of the world, or even depending on the purpose for which you're conducting the valuation. So if I'm conducting evaluation for tax compliance, then there's probably not some reason to be super aggressive with really optimistic, you know, assumptions there. You're not really serving anybody's interest, not even really the IRS's interest, by being super optimistic with your assumptions, you should be conservative with something that is like the, I sometimes call your blood numbers that like you'd sign your name in blood that like we will hit these numbers to your board of directors or else you could, you know, cut me loose. And so this should be sort of your conservative numbers for purposes of tax compliance, but for purposes of going out and trying to raise capital, you know, the, the less you can dilute your shareholders, the better. And so the better terms you can get for your, investment, the better. And so, you know, maybe you be optimistic and the more optimistic you are, the more possible of reaching that optimistic conclusion. So I don't think it's disingenuous to have both of those be true at the same time, but depending on the length through which you're looking, you might be more or less aggressive with assumptions. Tell me a little bit about how often 
a company goes through the 409A valuation process? So 409A was introduced uh, on the heels of the MCI, you know, WorldCom, Enron debacles, and the IRS didn't want people playing games anymore with stock options. And so within Rule 409A, which really broadly governs deferred compensation of any kind, like if you really wanted to get put to sleep, you could read 409A code and you'd read about teacher pensions and all sorts of things. But under that code, within 409A, they decided stock options are a version of deferring compensation. So instead of giving cash compensation now, we're providing deferred compensation to employees or stakeholders. And so as a result, they said, okay, if you're going to provide these, these options, then you shouldn't be backdating them and you should be granting them at fair market value at the time of grant. And then there's back and forth between the IRS and the community saying, okay, well, how are we going to handle this? How often are we going to value it? How do we determine the value? And the IRS determined that it should be done once per year if you're granting stock options. So, I mean, it's not, a, it's not like a business license, right? If you did one 14 months ago, and so you don't have a current one, it's not like, oh, crap, we're in violation of 409A. But if you're granting stock options, they should be granted against a current 409A valuation. And for it to be current, it should have been done within the most recent 12 months or after a material event. And so material events are a little bit up to the judgment of those involved. But generally speaking, it's been interpreted by the community as you raised another round. And so maybe it hasn't been 12 months, but you raised another round of, of capital. And so time to do another valuation or you know, some material adverse or material positive thing happened. And if that's stuff that you already had forecasted, you probably don't need another valuation because it should have been baked into that valuation. But if you just had this bluebird land in your lap that now I've got a giant government contract or something like that, I probably need a new valuation. Or if there's a material adverse impact to your business, could make sense to do an evaluation, sort of capture that lower strike price and be able to give options to employees at the lower strike price based on the new set of circumstances. So for instance, We've been getting a lot of companies coming back to us, even though it has not been 12 months since their last valuation, but COVID-19 came and the world changed a little bit. And so they want to have a new valuation that reflects the, the new and different outlook for their business. Tell us a little bit about the process of the 409A valuation. What are some of the documents that are required and how long should a company reasonably expect for you guys to be able to come back with your valuation number? Great. So who is on point from the company often varies depending on the size of the company and the skills of those involved. And so you know, early, early stage companies, it might be the CEO and there may not be a CFO. They might just have a, a you know, bookkeeper of some sort. And so in the early days, it's often the CEO. As they mature a bit, it can be, you know, a controller, a VP of finance that's often tasked to be on point. And then as they get much more mature, it's generally the chief financial officer that is on point for, for doing this. And as they get really big, sometimes it's delegated down to the VP of finance by the CFO. But the person on point tends to be dependent on the stage of the business. With regard to the process, generally people will reach out to us. We get a sense for how far along their business is because we do price based on the, the sort of stage of the business. We're similar to some of the 
top law firms out there where the some of these top law firms will provide their services at a discounted rate for very early stage companies. And as they get better capitalized, they get them up to their normal bill rates. And so they'll reach out, we'll figure out where they are and figure out what works for them in terms of a fee and get a fee determined, send them an engagement letter, they sign that. Once we get the engagement letter signed, we assign a team to the project, a point person from the team reaches out and sends a web form. We created a web form that's more like TurboTax, that depending on your prior responses, either adds questions or reduces questions. Cool. We can get all the information we need in one fell swoop. So it can be as little as 10 business days if they sign the engagement letter, fill out the web form, receive the draft, said this is great, let's go final, or it could elongate to kind of between two to three total weeks. So that's sort of the time frame. And the information that we ask for to complete the valuation, you know, it does again depend, like I said, the web form's dynamic, right? That's because you know, asking somebody for a five to 10 year forecast, if they are a seed stage business is typically a a waste of time. They might have it, but it might be just sort of, you know, throwing a dart at the wall and they've got no great visibility into exactly what their five to 10 year outlook looks like. And so we'll use other methodologies that are more well suited to an early stage business. Whereas if it's a more established business then they've got a track record, being able to do discounted cash flow analysis based on their five to 10 year projection model is great. And so we work with whatever is possible. And some companies are like, Hey, I, I formed two months ago. I got nothing. And so, you know, sometimes I'll even coach them through a DIY version of them doing their own because it's so early stage and the, the risk is so low, but sometimes their counsel out of an abundance of caution will say, no, how these guys do it. And we'll do something super simple for them that, that, you know, at that early of a stage tends to conclude that their value is par value that, you know, that they're basically the value that they, you know, initially capitalized the business with. Tell me a little bit about some of the levers or the important things that you guys are looking at for a company that has, has a few years, has considerable revenue and that is starting to grow. You know, maybe they don't have an expectation of five years of revenue and it's hard to do discount cash flow from there. But what are some of the things that you like looking at that are, are key components of the valuation process? Great. So when you're thinking about a company like that or really any company, you know, the purest within the valuation world, whether you're in school or talking to somebody that's writing books, is always going to say that the, the value of a business is the present value of its expected future cash flows discounted back to today for the risk of achieving those cash flows. That is the like pure definition of what the value of a business is. Right. And so when you're an early stage company that doesn't have cash flows, you might have revenue and you're burning um, cash and projecting what those cash flows look like in the future is difficult, then we'll be benchmarking the, the multiples at which similar companies trade either in an M&A setting, so people buying those types of businesses and what multiples did they buy them for as a multiple of their revenue or of their you know, ARR, not, not necessarily gap revenue, but their, you know, their expected annual recurring revenue. And so we can look at a number of metrics. It doesn't tend to, unless you're in a really early stage, it doesn't tend to be users. It tends to be, you know, you know, some measure of expected recurring revenue factoring, you know, churn, but, but we can look at comparables, but when you're looking at comparables, what you're doing is you're saying, well, somebody else, 
thought about what they think their expected future cash flows will be by buying or investing in that business. And so the purest definition still holds, but rather than being able to use their own projections to come up with that, you're saying, well, other people out there in the investing community that are thinking a lot about this and that are willing to write checks are valuing similar businesses in the following way based on their growth trajectory or based on you know, other factors. So essentially by looking at what the market views these companies to trade at on an enterprise value to revenue basis or on a, you know, on in an M&A setting, what somebody was willing to buy the company for as a multiple of their revenue, that implies sort of the wisdom of the crowd, the wisdom of the investing community of what they think the outlooks of these businesses um, should be. And then we can imply that, you know, we can impute from that what that implies for our business. And, you know, for our business, just like you would think about in a house, if you're thinking about house cost per square foot, mm. you're going to make an adjustment. Well, but this one has a pool and, uh, you know, this one's got really high ceilings and, and crown molding. And, and so similarly, you can't just take those multiples and say, well, the multiples are what they are. But what about the strength of the management team and, and how defensible is their market position and, and are they you know, providing what's sort of a compelling and irreplaceable value? And so you make adjustments for what's the set of circumstances. And so as you select multiples, you can kind of say, well, for the following reasons, we're selecting the more aggressive multiples or the more conservative multiples. And again, that goes back to the prior conversation of if I'm doing this for a tax purpose, then there's not a strong reason for anybody involved for us to be as optimistic as possible. We'll probably go with conservative assumptions. If we're doing it as you're trying to market the business to potential investors, then you're going to sell the sizzle, right? Definitely. Tell me about maybe a recent story or a valuation that stuck out to you in recent years where as you were going through the process, something really stood out, whether that was maybe good or bad and how that changed the valuation process. Because again, for some of those that either may not be in that uh, type of a role, and let's say they're in a you know product management position or they're in a sales position, they may not be able to get to see that like the CFO or a VP of finance would. So what's in your experience been some of the stories that you've seen that's really been, been something that's changed the valuation materially? Yeah, well, I would say some interesting examples. When you're thinking about the value of a business, then you should be thinking through the eyes of a potential investor or buyer. And so frequently we'll say something like that of like, okay, if I had to buy this business, what would I pay? What would be my pros and cons? What, I, what would I be worried about? And so, you know, an interesting one that we were working on one that, that we had an implied value that seemed to make sense to us based on everything that we'd seen. And we get the draft report to the executive team and the CEO says, well, you know, I, I know that for what we're paying you, we can't expect you to be constantly monitoring like every possible thing because like I say, we're pretty favorable priced for early stage companies, but it, we found out that there was legislation on the, on the floor of the, the house at that time that had a reasonable probability of passing that would completely kneecap this business's business model. And so you need to suddenly factor that in, like what's the probability that that legislation passes? And if that legislation passes, do you even have a business after that? And wow. so things like that can come up. You know, we've had situations where you're doing the valuation and quickly you realize, oh wow, there's some serious drama going on 
at the executive level here that could tear this thing apart. And so, okay, how are we going to factor that in? We, we worked on evaluation that was related to, you know, a divorce situation where the one party was arguing that if, you know, if the voting rights were to go to the, the spouse, then the spouse would quickly, you know, lock arms with somebody else on the board and get rid of that party. And so what, what's the implications on value of that? Does that add value? Would it be good to get rid of that party? Would it be, you know, negative value to get rid of that? So interesting. And so the, the interesting thing is that none of this stuff is just a pure spreadsheet exercise. This is what's happening in the real world. And what happens in the real world in real companies is that flawed people are involved and flawed situations are out there and you can't control for everything. And so you kind of just need to think through all of the, the various potential implications and come up with your, your best um, determination of value based on what's known or knowable at the time that you're doing the valuation. Talk to me about the overlap between private companies as they go through raising capital and the different valuation processes. It seems as though people are confused about how those two things might overlap. Yep, great. So typically as you go to raise capital, you don't necessarily engage a firm like ours to help you determine the value at which you want to raise that money. You might, it happens. We've had a number of companies that say, I don't have a really great idea of what I should be asking for out in the marketplace. Can you give me an idea so that I can go out and negotiate with confidence? And so we can help with that. But often people just go out to the market and try to get the best deal that they possibly can and let the market dictate what the value will be. But sometimes they'll say, well, you know, I'm going to do evaluation now, but I need to go out and raise capital three months from now. So what should I be thinking about as I raise, as I do this valuation now, if we have sort of a very conservative value, like you've talked about is typically used in 409A, is that going to be detrimental to me trying to raise money at the Great most question. value I can? And we try to help them understand that the investor community knows that 409A valuation is being done for purposes of clients. Okay. Everybody understands that and that you're still not being duplicitous or, or talking out both sides of your mouth by saying that I think it could be worth a lot. Because the reality is that the capital that comes in for those rounds in and of itself creates sort of a step up in the value of the business. And, you know, as an investor, you shouldn't necessarily pay for value that you create. However, just like in an M&A situation, you know, as you look at buying a business, you don't want to give up all of your accretion by overpaying. You want the value of that business to be accretive to what you paid. So you're delivering more value per share to your shareholders, otherwise you're destroying shareholder value. Well, similarly, when people are investing, they shouldn't necessarily pay for the value that they create by putting money in, but they know that there's other people that want to put money in too. And if they want to deploy cash, they're going to have to sometimes pay for that step up in value. And once you have that additional cash on hand, it makes it possible to pursue a bigger, more expansive growth strategy. Without that money, you can't pursue it. And so the value of the business, when I'm doing the 409A, and that money isn't in the door yet is less than the value of the business. Once that money's in the door and they can fuel that more rosy outlook. So that's sort of the difference between the two is you don't necessarily have to have them both have this nice you know, bridge between them. One is the value as of that date, given being conservative. And one is the value of what we could achieve if you put this money in and we pursue this broader, more expansive business strategy. 
really clear explanation and helpful to understand how those two fit together. And just to reiterate back so I don't miss anything, part of the valuation process a company might go through with, with economics partners is serving a compliance and or a tax need. And, uh, and they're not wanting, you know, you, it's okay to be conservative in those estimates, but that's different from maybe a venture capital or an investor coming in to say, I can see the potential in the future. And if I add money to this, then we hope it might be worth X in the future. So it seems as if those are really two different frames of references and a valuation process, quote unquote, can be different for those two parties. Yep. Yep, absolutely. But I mean, if they're right on top of each other, then then you don't want to be sort of saying, well, once that once somebody has committed that capital, once they've signed the term sheet, or, you know, it's not 100% that a deal will close when somebody signs a term sheet. It's pretty high probability because because VC firms don't want to be viewed as not following through once they commit to something, but it's never 100%. And there's a number of investments that fell apart in the midst of all this COVID stuff, right? People that had said they're going to follow through and then don't follow through as a result of the, of the material adverse impacts of COVID. And so even if we were doing evaluation after a term sheet was signed, we don't necessarily always assume 100% probability that it'll come to fruition, but we have to factor in the value that's being baked in now that that term sheet is a reality. And so the more space you can have between your 409A and the, you know, the step up in capital raise, the, the more that it's very defensible to have that stance. But once it becomes more and more certain that you'll raise that capital, now any 409A evaluation needs to be done factoring that in. And so we factor in that step up in value. Even so, generally speaking, when somebody's doing a venture investment, they are buying preferred shares, and preferred shares have preferred provisions. Right. What that means is often they have what's called a liquidation preference, yep. which means you know if I invested at a valuation of $50 million and I invested $5 million, then if the company sells for $50 million, I get my five million, but if the company sells for forty million dollars, I get my five million. If the company sells for five million dollars, I get my five million. Right. They get they get their one x liquidation preference, but they're convertible preferred, such that as soon as it's motivating to them, even if it's a penny for them to convert to common, then they'll convert to common and participate pro rata with everybody else. And, and there's there's special kinds of preferreds that might be participating preferreds that get their you know cake and eat it too, where they get not only <laughs> preference, but also their pro rata. But most people these days, if you're negotiating with from position of strength, have non-participating preferred where they have to either decide either I get my liquidation preference because the, the purchase price is low enough that that makes sense, or I convert to common and get my pro rata stake, one or the other, not both. But sometimes it's both. Sometimes they'll get a 2x liquidation preference. It just depends. But the majority of deals are getting what's called West Coast terms, and in the West Coast terms, you get non-participating preferred with a 1x liquidation preference. So you only get your money back. You don't get your money back plus. You don't have a cumulative dividend where they're kind of capitalizing that dividend to your liquidation preference and boosting up your return. So those are kind of the, the terms. But just by having a preferred share in general, that means the share that they have is a more valuable share than the stock that an employee would get. So an employee... Right is getting an option, not right. a share, but an option to buy a share, right. or that they have an option to buy is a common share, not a preferred share. And so there's still gonna be a spread between the value of the preferred and the value of the common. Right. 
Talk to us a little bit about the post-COVID-19 environment and how that's impacting valuations. It, it seems as if it's not just a one-size-fits-all. It's not as if some com- all companies are struggling. There's clearly been some winners, some losers. So w- how is COVID-19 impacting valuations right now? Yeah, so you're right. It definitely depends. And even within the same company, it can depend a little bit in that we were talking with a company today about their outlook and they serve the retail world both from a legacy retail and an online retail standpoint and they see tremendous growth with online retail and are projecting that as many as 30 percent of brick and mortar retailers are going to have their deaths accelerated by all of this so Even for them, it's tough for them to say exactly what the impact would be because it it almost looks like it's going to balance things out. But there are some businesses that very clearly it's a material adverse impact for them. And there's others that that everything is positive. We we just got a project in today that is a perfect data play for helping with some of the challenges that we face right now. And so some, some people are benefiting and others are running into challenges and and others, it's a mixed bag. And so in each individual circumstance, you need to look at it. And again, it depends on the stage of the business or how recently they've had a financing. But if, if they are, you know, far enough along that they can provide projected financials and they have a reasonable view of what they think the projections look like, then we can do discounted cash flow analysis that reflects the lower expectations and factor in the market's lower expectations and and get to a reasonable answer if they're not far enough along for that and they recently raised a round but the round closed before the world changed a bit then you could kind of say well the 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 thesis into which the investors invested is no longer the same thesis therefore implying the value of the common based on the recently priced preferred is not necessarily a fair value of the common because now the common is certainly worth less because the preferred is certainly worth less Hmm. Can make adjustments to that based on how the market has traded, and you can make adjustments to that based on you know commentary with the company and getting a good view as much as possible into the outlook of the business and trying to factor that factor that into the assumptions that you're using. So, as with almost any question that you ask a an attorney or a finance person, the correct answer is it depends. It depends is right. <laughs> That's too good. Well, Trent, we've talked about a lot. First, just what evaluation is, why it's important, and some of the different perspectives of when companies need it and why they need it. We've also talked a lot about the overlap between how this fits into raising rounds of capital and then just this post-pandemic world. So I guess for anybody that is interested in, in people that want to reach out to Economics Partners or you specifically, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Probably the best way is just go to our website, econpartners.com. If you call the number on our website, you'll get a live person right away, often me. <laughs> <laughs> cool. With us, with us working out of our office, you know, out, you know, outside of the office a lot, we've got the phone numbers routing to, to cell phone numbers. And so as of right now, I'm, I'm picking up a lot of the inbound phone calls but you know we are a you know 60 plus person firm we do work with companies as big as you know apple and and facebook and royal bank of canada and so we work with a lot of really big name companies but we work with tiny companies we work with barbershops so 
they go to our website, they can fill out a form or they can call the phone number. They'll be right in touch with somebody like me to, to help them out. Right on, Trent. Really fascinating hearing about this stuff. I appreciate your time and your expertise. I'll make sure to link to your website and some of the blog posts that you've published, which have been awesome. And thanks again for stopping in. We appreciate it. Have a great day. All right. Thank you. Great spending time with you. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.